Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone, and is a project of EEI, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Vietor, Vice President of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I got the pleasure of being joined by Tim Fox, who's a vice president at Clearview Energy Partners. And we're going to dig into state policy and state policy trends. So welcome, Tim. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us, for those that are uninformed, uninitiated, what the heck is Clearview Energy Partners? What do y'all do? Well, Clearview Energy is a DC-based macro energy research firm that serves primarily financial investors and corporate strategists. What's important to emphasize for today's conversation is that the firm does not provide political intelligence or lobbying services of any kind, nor does the firm represent corporate or, or partisan interests in any fashion. We're designed to provide research from an agnostic point of view. So you've got an informed audience on state policy, a lot of governor's offices, state legislators, folks like that listen in, but a lot who are also focused on federal policy. Why does state policy matter in the energy space? It's a great question. The Federal Power Act provides states with more policy levers than the federal government to influence, if not dictate, the electricity generation mix. And so the bulk of policies influencing the electricity sector comes at the state level. Now, this situation could change if Congress enacts a clean energy standard currently under discussion in the White House and among key negotiators on Capitol Hill, or if the White House tries to pursue a new greenhouse gas regulation through the EPA. But for now, the states are largely making these significant policies that are changing the electricity space. Well, let's talk about trends. What have we seen so far in 2021? Are states starting to get back to business as usual, or is it still everything is all about COVID all the time? So we did see somewhat of a slowdown of focus towards energy policy during the 2020 legislative session. But with many people getting vaccinated now and states beginning to reopen, we're starting to see states ramp up their energy policy review and enactment. There was a lot of discussion about Texas after winter storm Uri and an entire legislative session that seemed to focus on grid hardening and preventing those types of problems. Problems. The Texas example is certainly one that's of note, but what else? What are the big things that are out there that are nationally significant? Well, we saw three big trends, and we can dive into each one of them individually. But the, the first trend is the continuation of the subnational greening electricity sector, largely through state policies. We've also seen a new trend, a trend that actually we began to notice in early 2019, but we think it accelerated in 2021. And that's what we have called the Biden backlash, in which states with significant amounts of conventional resources are looking to limit or temper the opportunities of new entry for intermittent resources. And the third trend is, as you mentioned, a discussion of reliability. And what does that mean? And what are the policy implications for how policymakers interpret what is needed for a reliable grid? Let's dig into that one. Let's talk about reliability. You've got conservative states that are saying all of our reliability was a function of too much renewable energy. And then more progressive states saying all of our reliability was the result of not investing in the energy grid enough or investing in this old system as opposed to a decentralized one. How did it play out? It's an important question because thematically, we have long held that energy supply shortages tend to motivate policy changes greater 
than instances of energy oversupply. So what we saw recently is we saw the largest blue state, California, and the largest red state, Texas, they have experienced significant grid disruptions in recent weeks. And actually, I happened to be in Texas during the February winter storm. It was quite an experience. But what do you do in response? What are the policy implications? How do you interpret the solution to finding reliability? That can swing either way. For example, in California, we saw lawmakers say that the grid disruptions were a result of climate change. And as a result, the state needed to, as the governor put it, double down on renewable power. Not surprisingly, we saw a very different response in Texas, where we did see recently the governor sent a letter to the state regulators, the PUC, asking them to take four specific actions that, broadly speaking, appear designed to temper renewable power build out while at the same time incentivizing, I believe is the word he used, uh, thermal conventional generation. So reliability is an important issue, but how you define it and how you respond to reliability concerns is very different. You talked about what you're calling the Biden blowback in that Texas example and what Governor Abbott was saying. Do you have other examples of how the blowback materialized? I do, but let's first set the table of what we're talking about here. So ongoing post-election acrimony between the parties appears to be heightening partisanship. And these frictions could harden ideological battle lines. Essentially, Democrats can become even more champions of green energy and transition technologies, and Republicans can become even more the guardians of incumbent fossil fuels. And this environment is what we've now phrased the Biden backlash, in which the president's national green energy agenda could motivate states with extensive conventional energy industries toward policies designed to preserve at-risk coal or gas plants and or reduce entry opportunities for new resources. And we've seen this in a number of cases. Perhaps the most prevalent and most well-known and, and reported about in the press are these gas ban prohibition laws. 14 GOP-led states passed laws that prohibit localities from banning, limiting, or otherwise infringing on the ability for end users to consume natural gas. Now, only four similar acts were passed last year. So this trend is accelerating. And together, these 18 states represent about 45% of total natural gas consumption in the U.S. by residential, commercial, and industrial sectors. Now, that's the most common theme, but that's not the only one. So for example, in Montana, they enacted SB 257 that prohibits a local municipality from trying to create any sort of carbon tax or carbon penalty. In Wyoming, they passed HB 166 that prohibits state regulators from improving the retirement of a coal or gas-fired power plant unless regulators first determined that the retirement would result in significant cost savings and would not result in an insufficient amount of baseload electricity. So that is a pretty direct response of trying to hold up some conventional resources that may be at risk. And then as noted earlier, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas has most recently made a point of this with his letter to the PUC. We've been talking a lot about renewable policy over the last few years at the state level. Any new trends that you're seeing in renewable policy across the states? There are two trends I would want to mention. The first is the number of states that have now set offshore wind capacity deployment targets. This is a growing trend. And actually, what's important to note is that oftentimes states have set a target and then have subsequently raised that target within just a few years. And in fact, Massachusetts raised its targets three times within three years. And it's possible that they will continue to do so next session. These are very prescriptive policies. This isn't just saying we want a low or non-emitting resource. They say we want exactly this resource and at least this much capacity. And so that has allowed the industry some assurance that they can make the large investments and the large work that will take to build these facilities 
knowing that there will be uh, demand for their electricity generation. So that's the first trend. The second trend I think that we've seen is accelerating is the energy storage targets. So this similarly are states setting specific capacity deployment targets. We saw governors of both Maine and Connecticut recently enact laws to do so. By our count, there are now nine states with energy storage capacity targets with an aggregate of demanding more than 13 gigawatts of energy storage capacity in future years. That is actually not that much if you look at some of the projections of where energy storage is going in the United States from reputable sources, including the Energy Information Administration. But what it does say is that states are looking at how energy storage can complement their decarbonization goals. Well, and it's interesting as I think about that with respect to states that are in wholesale markets and one of the conversations we were having earlier about how the trend seems to be to advocate for prescriptive policies, put constraints on those markets in one way or another. So it's interesting to see that trend continue as well. Uh, absolutely. Rightly or wrongly, we rarely see state lawmakers raise concerns about how their policies will affect the wholesale market. That is not an issue we see come up often in state committee hearings. As someone who sits there at the intersection between state policy, federal policy, and the investment community, how are these policy movements at the state level impacting investment? A lot of clients are very interested in the long-term trends. And I think one of the issues that we've seen is oftentimes utilities aren't always necessarily looking at what's the current administration going to do. They're looking much longer than that. One of the issues that's important to remember in the electricity sector is that power plants are designed to be built and to continue to be in service for a very long time. So you want to look beyond the most recent policy shifts and look what, what are the long-term trends. And I think our clients and those who we've spoken to are trying to gauge what this transition will look like, how long will be a transition, and what are some of the hurdles. So there was a related story in the New York Times recently that was talking about this move towards clean energy and the two competing camps that are out there. On the one hand, you've got centralized power plants focused on the utilities themselves who are focused on building a bunch more transmission to bring power from where it is to where the people are. And then you've got the distributed generation developers who are just saying, we need to eliminate the power grid and we need to focus more on microgrids focus more on local development of electricity. Are you seeing those types of themes play out? Well, I would say from my point of view that most states are looking at both to a certain degree, but certainly I would agree that more green-leaning or perhaps Democrat-led states tend to focus a lot of attention also on distributed energy resources and perhaps a little less so in some of the red states. But we have seen states look towards both. And one of the issues that you mentioned is transmission. That's something that needs to largely be dealt with at the federal level. We understand that the FERC is going to open up a proceeding looking at cost allocation and other issues surrounding transmission. But to build a transmission line, you need more than just one state. Most transmission lines go across multiple states, and that is a, a root cause of some of the headaches. You talked about the federal state interplay. One issue that I've seen highlighted maybe in a different way this year than in some other years is some discussion about RTO expansion in a few states, in particular out in the Southwest for sure. And then there's some discussion over in the Southeast. Do you have anything you'd like to share on that front or maybe some of the trends you've seen? Absolutely. It's an interesting new trend because one of the trends we were discussing with clients a couple of years ago was this idea that a lot of state lawmakers were unhappy 
unhappy with the results of the wholesale markets. Essentially, they were saying that the wholesale markets were not providing the incentives and the motivations to transition to cleaner resources at a pace at which they wanted. And so a lot of states were enacting prescriptive policies that are dictating the outcome of the generation mix. Offshore wind targets are perhaps the most explicit example, but certainly renewable mandates and, and other policies are demonstrating to the degree in which state policymakers are saying the markets are not doing what we want. And so we are going to mandate what kind of grid we're going to have, even though they're going to stay in the markets. They're saying we're going to not have the market be the only factor in determining what is going to be the generation in our state. What we're now seeing is that a lot of state lawmakers are realizing the opportunities that do come with participating in wholesale markets as far as being able to capture more renewables in the region and perhaps doing so with greater reliability and resiliency. Three states this year look at this. One example is in Nevada, where the governor recently signed an act that directs the, the utilities to join a wholesale market. Yeah, I kind of noticed some of the same trends as you did. It's like, I hear all these wholesale markets complaining that they don't work and they don't deliver on renewables. They're built for cost. And then on the other hand, you've got states going, no, 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 we need to do this because of the access it's going to give us to renewables. So every state is unique, I guess, is my is my takeaway. The reasons for and against are not uniform. And it seems like states just want to keep a bunch of options on the table and they're willing to explore whatever they can to figure out how to get more renewables and how to reduce costs and increase reliability. Absolutely. I mean, and it's important to, as you said, emphasize that each state is different. Obviously, there are states that tend to trend together. And I apologize for using this word in a post-COVID environment, but state policies tend to be contagious. When one state follows and acts a law, oftentimes other states will look at that and say, well, we can build on that or we can follow it. You know, thematically, the idea of going 100% clean used to be almost an academic discussion only a couple of years ago. The idea of actually trying to achieve it did not seem realistic. And I think states are largely to credit for the advancement of these policies. First, Hawaii did it. And, you know, Hawaii being as it is an island, it may not be a reasonable to assume that other states could do so as well. Then California did it, then other states. And so what we observed, rightly or wrongly, were a lot of state policymakers presuming that doing so is possible, even though it hasn't been done before. It's fascinating. There's a lot of one-upsmanship that we see on that front of people just figuring out how to move those goalposts, which is interesting in the investment world, as those of us who work with investors try to figure out what's what. All right. So as you look forward to 2022 and think about those legislative sessions, what trends do you expect to be at the forefront as we go into sessions next year? Well, the two trends I mentioned earlier, I think it will continue. The subnational greening is likely to continue. And I do believe that those policies will be significant drivers in the electricity sector. I also think the Biden backlash trend is likely to continue at least throughout his administration. Now, it's important to emphasize that while we do not expect states to enact sweeping policies that halt the grid's transition to a lower carbon intensive resources, we do think a few states could enact new laws that attempt to slow its progression. So we think those two trends are likely to continue. I think issues about reliability are likely to continue. One of the things I think that also we're going to start to see more and more of are state policymakers turning to what policies they can implement to electrify the transportation sector. A lot of states have already begun allowing to some degree incumbent electric utilities to invest in EV charging infrastructure or make ready infrastructure 
investments. In light of the Biden administration's pursuit of electrifying the transportation sector, electric utilities are largely perceived as being somewhat in the driver's seat when it comes to implementing the policies that states want to electrify transportation. It harkens back to uh, a comment I heard your colleague a few years back, where she's like, every time I talk to my oil and gas clients, all they talk about are electric vehicles. And every time I talk to my utility clients, they, they seem to miss this point and this topic. I think that it's certainly changed since then over the last three, four years, but it is interesting. Everything seems to be moving in that direction. And so it's not surprising to me to hear about some of the traditional fossil fuel interests focusing attention on slowing down some of the expansion of electric vehicles. Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks for your insights. Thanks for giving us a little bit of time. I appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. We hope you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights on energy policy. To learn more about EEI and the electric power industry, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.